Hello Podders, this is Gary Scott Irvine with the 14th in our series of podcasts from The John Cleese. We're going to be playing you an interview that John recently did in Montreal when he was attending the Montreal Comedy Festival. Uh, He was asked to do a gala there, the closing night gala, and we all travelled up to Montreal, spent a week there, it was great. He did really well and was well received. Anyway, this podcast will uh, have the interview that he did with Ian Hanamansing, who is the CBC broadcaster in Canada, and um, really, really nice guy. Did a great interview with John. John did this the night before the gala, and it was in a theatre, so Dean and Mark have done their best to make sure the sound's good. The theatre showed some clips, so you'll get audience reaction to clips that you won't see, but John will talk about them, and it opens they having just shown some of 40 Towers. So enjoy it. We're going to spread it over a couple of podcasts. It's about an hour and a half, so it should be interesting. But this is podcast number 14. I hope you enjoy. who would not want to sit through a sitcom that they had made, what, 30 years ago I in front of a live audience. I haven't seen that, 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 that for probably 20 years. I'd actually forgot. It's How does very it feel? funny. <laughs> it actually is very funny. It was based on several things. I mean, first of all, it was by Andrew, was, uh, Andrew's character, Andrew Sachs's character. Incidentally, you will not guess where Andrew was born. Berlin. Can you believe that? Uh, Andrew is 10 years older than I am. He's in fantastic physical shape. He's 76 years of age. He looks as trim as ever. I worked with him the year before last. His character was based on the fact that in the 70s, they were bringing a lot of people in from anywhere to wait in London restaurants, provided they were cheap. And you could never get more than about 70% of anything you actually ordered. (laughs) It's true. Um, But looking at that reminded me that when I did that show, I was actually only 35 or 36 years old. And the makeup lady, because we thought Basil was at least in his 40s, had done a lot of stuff with the crow's feet and all that. And I remember that when I finished the series, I went down to see my mother in Western Supermare, and she said to me as I walked in the door, she said, oh, you're looking much better. So the inspiration for that, in part, was a hotel that you and the uh, other absolutely, cycle members yeah. stayed at. We, we were filming uh, in, uh, in Torquay, Uh, The Monty Python guys had gone down there to shoot some film for the television series, and we stayed in this hotel, which was actually called Glen Eagles. And after 24 hours, the others left, because the guy who ran the hotel, whose name was Donald Sinclair, he was the rudest man I've ever met in my life. I remember the first evening, um, we were all sitting at a table having dinner, and uh, he was sort of prowling round, because he was very grand, you know, and he got behind the table, and he looked down, and Terry Gilliam, our American, had done what Americans often do, which is that he'd cut up the meat like that, transferred the fork to that hand, and he was spearing the meat like that. (laughs) And Sinclair stared at him. He said, we don't eat like that in this country. (laughs) So the others were off, and Connie and I, for some reason, because Connie was actually appearing in the filming show, she'd come, we stayed on. And, you know, thank God we did, because that that guy gave us enough material. I mean, he was just extraordinary, because when you, when you walk down the steps into reception, he'd be just sitting at the desk, staring into space. 
And the moment he saw somebody coming, he'd immediately pretend that he was very, very busy. And then you'd come up and stand there, the other side of the reception desk, and he would ignore you as though you'd suddenly been rendered invisible. And he would, and, and eventually you'd say, um, uh, excuse me, and he'd say, oh, what? <laughs> he'd say, could you, could you please call me a taxi? What? <laughs> could you call me a taxi? He'd say, you're, 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 oh, fine, yes, oh, yes. Well, why don't you go and lie down on the sofa over there and I'll call you a taxi? <laughs> And one night, because uh, Eric, one morning, Eric um, stayed on the hotel. He was the other one who didn't move out. And he left his briefcase uh, that morning by the front door. And when he came back that night, um, he'd forgotten the briefcase. He, he walked in and he walked over to Sinclair and said, excuse me. And Sinclair said, oh, what? And so Eric said, I left my briefcase this morning by the... He said, yes, yes, it's, it's over there. And he pointed out the, the main um, door to a, a, a wall, a white wall, about 70 yards away, the other side of the swimming pool. And he said, it's behind the wall. And Eric said, behind the wall? Yes, yes, behind the wall. Eric said, well, excuse what? He said, well, why, why did you put the briefcase behind the wall? And Sinclair said, we, we thought it might be a bomb. <laughs> and this was before any of the IRA stuff had started. And, 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 and Eric said, I'll bomb. And he said, well, we've had some staff problems recently. <laughs> So we just sat there lapping this stuff up, and about a year, two years later, when Connie and I decided to write something together, um, we, we were there for 20 minutes, and we said we've got to do something set in the hotel. So what sweet revenge. Many of us have had the experience, perhaps not as extreme as that, of having bad service, but be, to be able to use it in a sitcom. Now, wonderful. did that gentleman ever know that he was the inspiration? Oh, it was rather embarrassing. And I did something, because after about 10 or 15 years, I was doing an interview once with the Daily Mail. And for some reason, I thought, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. And I, I let it slip. I said, well, actually, it was based on this hotel called Glen Eagles. And they tracked the poor man down <laughs> to his retirement home in Miami because he'd sold up and gone over there. And they showed, he wouldn't talk to them, but they showed a couple of episodes to his daughter. And she said, that's dad. <laughs> But about five years ago, his widow, because I'm afraid he passed on, his widow was being interviewed by a national newspaper. And she finally spoke out. She said, I've, I've put up with this for many years. But uh, the, the program was a complete travesty. My husband was absolutely nothing like that man. He was a war hero and an English gentleman. And he was nothing like Basil Fawlty. At all. And this was in the paper. And two days later, the letters started flooding in, flooding in, not just from guests who'd stayed there, but from ex-staff. <laughs> all of them saying he was exactly like that. <laughs> and I'm really, I'm really telling you, the only thing we had to change was his height. Because Donald Sinclair was really quite small. Those of you who've made a study of world history will have noticed that no one over five foot eight has ever caused any trouble. <laughs>
He was there, and his wife was very, very big, so we kind of had to reverse that, which kind of disguised the fact it was really the hen-pecked husband. He was an extraordinary, extraordinary guy. I mean, the gratuitous rudeness was just wonderful. I'll try not to take the five-foot-eight thing too personally. So, <laughs> the, uh, I checked with your age. <laughs> your five-eight and a half. Ian, so. I am tonight. The, uh, the, the co-creator, your co-writer, and one of the co-actors in this... Yeah. Uh, in Nibbling people's ankles. <laughs> Six-foot-four man with a beautiful grey suit on and a tie, nibbling their ankles. And, you know, the head of BBC One was standing there saying, yes, well, you know, we're hoping to do a co-production with HBO. <laughs> and he loved, he loved behaving badly. He was invited once to speak at the Oxford Union. Now, they take themselves very, very seriously, those people. You know, they wear um, evening dress, bow tie, and they put their thumbs in there, and they pontificate the debate. Well, they asked Graham to speak on a reasonably serious subject. I think it may have been something to do with the fact that Gray was, was gay, so it may have been something to do with homosexuality. And he turned up as one of the, the, the guest speakers dressed as a carrot, He'd found this wonderful carrot costume that was bright orange, you see, and it came up like this, just a little orange suit, and he had to walk around like that, and then he had a little green sprig on his head. And when it was his turn to speak, because all the guest speakers had to speak for 12 minutes, he got up and refused to say a word. He just stood there in the Oxford debating chamber, completely silent, for 12 minutes, and then sat down happy that he had ignited a riot. <laughs> and I tell you, this is how naughty he was, because he did get very naughty. We did a show in the early 70s for German television, Monty Python's Fliegander Zirkus. And when we were invited to do it, they said, come to Munich and spend a couple of days and look at all the possible locations. Then when you go away to write the show, um, you'll have some idea of what we got to offer. So when, when we arrived, it was very bizarre. I'm very fond of the Germans. I get on with them very well, but this was bizarre. We arrived, and um, we were driven to the hotel, and then they said, please, uh, if, you could, uh, if you could please just a quick wash and brush up, because uh, now we go to Dachau. <laughs> so we said, okay, okay, that's a good idea, you know? So we, we rushed down, and they got in the cars, and then we, we drove off to Dachau. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And they were obviously keen that we should visit it, so that was fine. And we sat in the car when we got there, and uh, the, um, we noticed there was a little bit of an argument going on where the, at the ticket counter, but we just waited. And then they came back and they said, this is very embarrassing. We're so, we're so sorry, but we did not know. It's, it's, it's Thursday is early closing here in Dachau. It's not possible to get in this afternoon. And Graham Chapman said, tell them we're Jews. <laughs> <laughs> it is such bad taste it goes all the way around the back and comes out the front but he was he was naughty 
It's one thing to be naughty back in 1967, 1972, uh, but the taboos just keep falling on in movies, on television. Yes. If you were starting out today and you were trying to push those taboos a little bit, uh, it would be a lot tougher, I would think. It's much tougher because, of course, it never pulls back. If people keep pushing the envelope, it gets further and further and further out there. And there's no question at all that taboos, they're very, very, very useful to comics. And I think it's for two reasons. First of all, if you go into these kind of areas where you are a little bit taboo, it means that they haven't been explored. So there's kind of new comedy material there for the simple reason that it's not well-trodden territory. But the other thing is that taboos make people just a little bit anxious. I think it's to do with... A, that explains the success of so many not-very-funny sex jokes. It's just the very fact, you see, the very fact, the very fact that it's something to do with sex makes people slightly anxious. They're not entirely at ease with it. And that means that when the laugh comes, it's fueled, it's kind of increased by that extra energy that comes from the anxiety. But, you know, if you look even at faulty tars, which you don't think of as taboo-breaking, a lot of it was to do with sex, a lot of it to do with rats in the kitchen, dead bodies, all that kind of thing. And when you get into those areas, there's no question at all that it helps the comics. Because what you hate as a comic is no response at all. And therefore, if you've got a bit of material that you're not, terribly confident with, that you just, it feels a little bit flat, not very exciting, then if you can, for example, put some bad language into it, or throw in a couple of ob obscene thoughts as well as <laughs> obscene words, it's as though it, it fuels it. It means that it doesn't just lie there. It may not be very funny, but at least it has some energy. And the problem is, if year after year after year you push the envelope, eventually, w w where are you? Because you, you can't suddenly say, okay, well, let's go back to 1970 again and start again. It, it makes, I think it makes comedy harder and harder. So bad language, coarse language is a staple of comedy now, even on yeah. primetime television, yeah. even in the United States. Do you, do you find that cheapens the writing and the wit? I think so. I think that there are, there are moments when it's... When, if it's carefully chosen, an obscenity is terribly, terribly, terribly funny. Um, there's one in Life of Brian, and I'll think of it in a moment. Uh, but there's, there's, um, there are moments when it can be beautifully chosen, and it's kind of valid. But I think a lot of the time, it is people thrashing around, and I think that does rather devalue the comedy. Yeah. Because when you can have... Well, let people applaud... You notice tepid applause because most of your fellow comics in Montreal are using all kinds of colorful language, but when you can get away with making people laugh with high-minded comedy, like dismembering a knight, for example, yes. without swear words, then, exactly. I mean, that's yeah. wit. That's right. <laughs> I tell you the line, there was a line in a sketch I wrote about Michelangelo trying to sell a, poem, uh, a painting to the Pope, and the Pope at some point says, look, I may, not, I may not know much about art, but I am the fucking Pope. And there's something, <laughs> there's something about... Fucking and Pope that is funny when it isn't funny when it's fuck, 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 fuck. 
Now, when Monty Python was being played in the United States yes. on PBS, yes. it was, you, you had an interesting, and we'll talk more about fame later, but, but you had an interesting taste of fame at that point because it was narrow but very, very deep. For example, you were stay, saying at, that at a hotel, for example, you were a superstar among the staff. Well, it's, it's, the whole business of fame is, is, a, is quite odd, and I like talking about it because people think it must be wonderful to be famous. And, you know, it's fine, but it doesn't solve all the problems of life. And I think that some people think that, that, that fame is a kind of panacea and that everything would be... You see, I think most of us are struggling. I'm getting a bit serious now, but I'll tell you what I really think. I think most, most of us are struggling to find real meaning in our lives, to find things that we think are very, very meaningful. And I think in current society, there's such an emphasis on celebrity that people feel that celebrities' lives have more meaning than their own. I think that's complete bullshit. It's just that if you see, thank you, if you see lots and lots of people staring at someone, you think, well, he must, that person they're staring at must know something I don't know. It isn't true at all. It just means they're number two banana in a sitcom. But tell us a little bit about fame. I'm curious yeah. about what it's like to be in your shoes when, for example, you want to get great tickets to a concert in California. Oh, that helps. This is one of the, there's upsides and downsides. I mean, the upside is money. Um, the, the next upside is that you can get seats in restaurants and tickets to shows. There's no question about that. And I think there's another one. I'm trying to remember what it is. But on the other side is the fact that you become a commodity. Nobody, and a psychiatrist in, in L.A. was saying this to me the other day, and I hadn't really thought of it. What he said is, nobody really wants you. They want that image of you. And if you really start talking about yourself, you're on the whole, they tend to be a bit disappointed. You see what I mean? And then, because you're a comedy, if you go, a, a, a commodity, if you go into a room, in fact, everyone in that room wants something from you. And it's very interesting. Now, a lot of it is very nice stuff, like they all, everyone's got one charity that they really, really care about. And if they could bend your ear about that one charity just for five minutes, it would make them very, very happy. And that would be fine if they didn't all want to do it. Do you, do you, you see what I mean? It's utterly legitimate behavior. And the other thing is that people, when you're famous, people come up and they say the same thing the whole time. They say, Mr. Cleese, I just have to tell you how much your work has meant to be over the years and what a great gift it is to be able to bring laughter into the world and how much joy you've brought to me and my family in the last few years, you see? And you really want to tell him to piss off because <laughs> the first 300 times somebody said that, you thought it was terrific. However, but once you get into the 50,000th time, it's just the fact that the repetition kind of robs it of any, of any sense of meaning. Remember when you're a kid and you suddenly decide to say a word 50 times, kettle, 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 and you suddenly think it's not really a word and it's any kind of immense amount of repetition robs them. So a lot of us don't know how to react when they see, when we see someone like you, especially if you've meant so much to us in our family. So when we see you... <laughs> when we see you on piss the street... <laughs> you just told me to piss off. <laughs> when we see you on the street... How should we react? I love it if somebody actually comes up and instead of saying, you know, uh, you know, the best people of all are the West Indians. 
On the streets of London, there are, the people I dread are the English people who come up and say, Mr. Cleese, my son will go stark staring mad when I tell him this evening that I have spoken to you here in Oxford Street. <laughs> to which on one occasion I said, well, you better not tell him then. <laughs> but, the next thing is they're telling you about their son's education and how he's very good at field hockey. And, and, and you think, how did I get it? Now, the West Indians are great. They just say, hey, man, like your show. You know? And it's really nice. It's a moment of affection. They like the show, and it's very simple. So the more it's a natural human communication, the easier it is to respond to. But when people go on and say, you know, how wonderful you are, you're standing there thinking, how do I respond to this? You know, when, and I, I always send them up, and they say how wonderful I am. I always say, I know. <laughs> what, what are you supposed to say? Do you see what I mean? So the fame thing is kind of fascinating, and what's happened is that if you think that up to the invention of the camera, if anyone was famous, it's because they'd really, really accomplished something. You know, if there were people in the, in the last century, the, sorry, in the 19th century, give my age away, you know, they were Tennyson, or they were Disraeli, or Gladstone, or Florence Nightingale. They'd actually done something if you knew who they were. Now, as I say, they're just second banana in a sitcom. And the idea that if you know someone, they must be important, which used to be true, has now been transferred to, to generations of people who are next to talentless, and who have absolutely nothing to offer at all, but are read about with avidity. And it's absolutely insane. I was talking to my screenwriter friend, William Goldman, last week in New York, and he told me that uh, Jessica Simpson had been in a town, and on three occasions she'd had to go out to shop, and each occasion she'd had to be rescued by the police and brought back to the hotel because she was getting mobbed. Now, you know what I mean? There's a big gap between Florence Nightingale and Jessica Simpson. <laughs> you see? So what we've got to do is we've got to go back, I think, to some idea that celebrity needs to be connected in some way with some kind of accomplishment. That was the John Cleese Podcast 1414. Visit the website thejohncleese.com. Uh, this was potted by Funk. Funk, that's F-U-N-K dot co dot U-K. Okay. Okay.